Good morning, everybody. Hope everybody's doing well. Welcome to Turfgrass Epistemology. I am Travis Shaddix, former assistant professor, University of Florida, University of Kentucky, former salesman, former turf manager, former sports field manager, former university groundskeeper, <laughs> former, a lot of former things. And now I'm retired and I, I help, try to help people understand how we know what we know about turf grass science. Welcome. It is February 20th, 2024. I had a little bit of a long weekend. It was nice. President's Day was on Monday and I forgot about that last week. And so we are, um, I was off on Monday yesterday. So anyway, today we're back. We have a probably the most peculiar guitarist will end the show tonight or today, this morning. Sorry. I don't know of a much more peculiar guitarist than this one. If you haven't heard him before, you'll hear him at the end of the show. One of my more, I don't know, favorite guitarists. There's some guitarists that I just, they just, there's no vocals like Joe Satriani and, um, Stevie Vai and people like that. He sort of fits into that category. I don't know if he fits into any category, to be honest. <laughs> He's very strange. <laughs> but he makes very good music. So uh, that'll be at the end of the show. I've been going back and forth on memberships, trying to figure out exactly what I want to do. Or if I want to do anything. I've had a conversation with one or two of you and um, kind of floating around ideas about what you all would be interested in um, paying for, basically. And you know, I don't want to charge something if you're not going to get something in return that's of equal or greater value. So I've been floating around some ideas, <clears throat> and I'm feeling a little bit more comfortable with that concept um, through some of your feedback. And so there'll be some changes to the channel. It'll probably be a little while. It'll probably be after spring break, which is in April. But there'll be a few adjustments to it. And the intent is to provide greater content beyond what I'm providing now uh, for people who might be interested in going a little deeper into the content and information and a little bit more interaction with myself and and you all collectively if you want to interact with each other so look for that probably in april or may <clears throat> um there was something else with that i can't remember now what it was but anyway Let's see what's oh on, oh by the way there was something going on this weekend I, I wasn't sure what it was for some reason there was a lot of traffic on my channel well not much compared to other people's channels I mean I have a very small channel but for my channel it was a inordinate amount of interaction and traffic on my channel for some reason and I was trying to figure out what it was and I think I figured out what it was there was a video posted last week by a, a larger lawn care channel. It had some very favorable and flattering things to say about what I'm doing over here on this channel. And I'm going to go over that tomorrow night. I'll, I'm going to show that and kind of 
it was very flattering and it was um to me direct evidence of how this channel is having a positive impact and i wanted to show that so we'll go over that tomorrow today we're going to go over a little bit an article an, a one-year-old article on the super bowl that i missed last year and i read it this weekend and i was laughing <laughs> so i wanted to go over it today and then we have an article on mbpt which is a urease additive nitrification or i'm sorry a uh, nitrogen stabilizer and i'll get into that as soon as we get through the super bowl article which i just found funny <laughs> so i'm gonna go over it right now actually uh so welcome so if you're not familiar with what happened last year with the Super Bowl, let me just briefly explain what happened on Super Bowl 57. The players were very disappointed if, and upset, I guess, about the, the field conditions. The field looked fine on TV, I'm sure. Probably looked fine to the players, I guess, when they went out there and practiced on it, I suppose. I don't know. But the, the field didn't maintain its uh, performance. It didn't perform well. And the players were sliding all over the place. It was very, um, I don't want to say it was dangerous, but it was not up to standards with professional fields. And I went over it about a week ago or two weeks ago. I can't remember. I went, I went over a little article about that was posted on ESPN about the conditions of the field. I had not really heard much about why it happened, but I don't really look into this stuff. You guys probably already knew all about this stuff. Who knows? I didn't know anything about it. I'm, I do other things and I don't really, I don't know. I don't really look around on the internet for stuff like that. But this, but I found that last article a couple weeks ago and I went over it and it'll be posted as a separate video here shortly on my channel. Um, but when I read that article, I went over it on my channel. I decided to kind of look into it a little further to see if there's anything more about what was said about the field. <laughs> and um, I found an article. So I just, it's hilarious. To me, it's funny. So we're going to go over that right now. So the article was posted on USA Today last year, February 28th, 2023. And the title of the article is The Sod Father, George Toma Explains Why Super Bowl. 57 field was so slippery. So for those who might not know who George Toma is, George Toma is, is I, I've never met George. I don't know him. I would, you know, I mean, I know what he looks like, but I've never met him. And he's been involved with the NFL for decades and decades and decades. He's been in the turf grass business for 70 or 80 years. He's 95, I think, as of uh, this year, 2024. I think he's around 94, 95 years old. Uh, as far as I know, he's retired now. I don't know, but um, he's been around the Super Bowl f probably more than any turf manager, maybe more than any person. Uh, I don't know, but um, he's very experienced when it comes to the turf grass and the Super Bowl and players' expectations and all these things. So the article is called The Sod Father. George Toma explains why Super Bowl Field 57 was so slippery. So I was like, okay, well, I'll read this. <laughs> so here we go. The Sodfather has spoken. George Toma, the longtime groundskeeper who was pre 
who has prepared and then consulted the NFL for every Super Bowl field, said this year's field at the State Farm Stadium was overwatered and that the issues at Super Bowl 57 were entirely preventable. During the game, an eventual 38-35 Kansas City Chiefs victory over the Philadelphia Eagles, players slipped on the grass surface of the stadium in Glendale, Arizona, often chewing up chunks of sod. At least half a, half a dozen Eagles players switched cleats during the first half in an attempt to get a better grip, including quarterback Jalen Hurts, who changed from Jordan 11 cleats to Jordan 1 cleats. I'm not particularly concerned or worried about players changing cleats. This happens all the time. Um, they go out, they practice. They might change their cleats between practice and the game. They might change their cleats in the middle of the game trying to get better traction if they find that their, their cleats aren't giving them the traction they want. That's very common. I'm not overly concerned about that. Um, but, you know, you're just saying that, that that's what happened there. In 2001, the Pro Football Hall of Fame presented Toma, known as the Sodfather and God of Sod, with the Pioneer Award for Innovative Contributions to Professional Football. So that doesn't happen very much in the turf grass industry. The Pro Football Hall of Fame gives you an award. I don't know how many people have got something like that, but I don't imagine it's more than maybe one. <laughs> so, you know, he's well experienced. What did George Thomas say about why the Super Bowl 57 field was so slippery? In an interview with ESPN, Thomas said the field was watered the Wednesday morning before the game, which took place on Sunday, February 12th. After watering the field, after watering, the field was then immediately rolled into the stadium using the hydraulic system that allows the turf to catch sun. It's a weird way to word that, but whatever. Toma's belief was that the field should have remained in the sun Wednesday morning to dry out before being rolled in, advice that the NFL field director Ed Mangan did not heed. Now you're going to find here that Toma is not very flattering at all to Mangan. So these guys, I don't know the history there. You guys probably know it well, more well than I do. I don't know anything about it. But clearly, there's some friction here, okay? So what he does, he waters the hell out of it and puts it right into the stadium, and that's it, Toma told ESPN. Never sees sunlight again. He can't do that. <laughs> that's Megan. I mean, that's uh, Toma talking about Mangan, what he did. It's throwing someone under the bus pretty pretty bad. Now, if he did something wrong, then so be it. But, I mean, he's clearly not defending Mangan's actions. So, we continue. Toma added that a tarp was laid over the field to protect it from rehearsals for the pregame and halftime shows. Toma said he was told in the lead-up to the game that the field was starting to decay. It had a rotten smell, Toma said. So if you remember last week's article or whatever it was, went over the Super article a couple weeks ago, it was an anonymous source. It said a source told ESPN, you know, it didn't, it didn't say who the source was. So now obviously I'm, this is very similar to the language that was used in that anonymous, you know, tipster last article I went over and it's very similar language. So I'm wondering <laughs> if George was, you know, was communicating with ESPN on that topic. But I don't know. Were there any other issues with the field at Super Bowl 57? Toma also told ESPN that Mangan did not allow the field to be sanded enough, a process that encourages efficient drainage. He sanded it two weeks too late, Toma said. He had only one sanding. He should have had two or three sandings, but he didn't do blank. <laughs> He didn't do S, basically. Didn't do expletive. 
And that was it. And not only that, he didn't take care of it. He wouldn't listen to anybody. This is George Toma talking about Ed Mangan. Okay. So he only sanded it once. He should have sanded it two or three times and he didn't do blank. <laughs> he wouldn't listen to anybody. That's amazing that they would say these things to ESPN. What did Eagles players have to say about the field condition at Super Bowl 57? Eagles offensive lineman Jordan Malatka, I don't male Malatka, I don't remember that name. That doesn't name doesn't sound familiar. Offensive lineman George Jordan Malata, who said he's he's not a grass expert, described described the conditions as pretty slippery, similar to playing on a water park. <laughs> While the Eagles players were quick to stress the field condition was not the reason why they lost, they did indicate that it was something they had to account for. I changed my cleats and right before the second half wore the, wore the different ones, Philadelphia's tight end Dallas Goddard said after the game. The second half, you know, the field was tearing up a little bit. You know, once again, we're playing on the same field as the Chiefs. So, I mean, that's really the way to look. I mean, it's unfortunate the field was that way, but both teams played on the same field. What are you going to do? You know? Now, here we go. Did the NFL say anything about the field conditions at Super Bowl 57? The State Farm Stadium field surface met the required standards for the maintenance of natural surfaces as per NFL policy, the league said in a statement the day after the game. The natural grass surface was tested throughout the Super Bowl week and was in compliance with all mandatory NFL practices. Well, clearly, the mandatory NFL practices need to be amended if that's the case everybody on tv and all the players i'm exaggerating but basically there's a huge percentage of people who recognize the field was clearly causing a problem but it fell within nfl standards well clearly there's something needs to be added to the nfl standards if that field meets the standards of the nfl what is it what is next for george tome after super bowl 57 According to ESPN, Toma has retired after more than 80 years in groundskeeping with Super Bowl 57 being the last. This next paragraph is hilarious. I can't take it anymore, Toma told ESPN. We're adding, <laughs> while adding that he's not pleased with how the league has responded to the field issues in the past. Me and the league are finished. They can't tell me what to do anymore. We're done. <laughs> that is one upset groundskeeper. This was last year. I wonder if he's cooled off since then. I don't know George Toma, but I'd love to have him on here and talk to him about it. I know he was on a podcast maybe, I don't know, maybe nine or ten months ago with some guys. I don't know if it was ESPN or somebody else. I don't know who it was. And he wasn't quiet. That's for sure. I mean, he let his opinion go. I mean, when you're 95 years old and you've seen basically everything there is to see, you know, I guess your attitude is, F it, we're out. I'm, this is the, you know, this is my opinion. You like it or don't like it. <laughs> So, um, I just, I just got a kick out of that. We're finished. Can't take it anymore. <laughs> Can you imagine how frustrated he might've been at the time? I don't know what he said before the game. Like, I wonder whether or not he actually, um, said something to the groundskeepers. And I mean, he said that he, he wouldn't listen to anybody. So I infer from that he was he was vocal about the conditions of the field, but it doesn't say anything in here. Like I was telling him he should do this. I was telling him that, you know, I recognized there was a problem and I let, you know, I let my, let the people know there was a problem. I, I didn't see anything like that in here, but, um, I'm, I'm wondering if that, if indeed that happened or 
if prior to the game going on, he was on record as saying, yeah, everything looks fine. I mean, it's easy to sit here after the fact and bash people, right? But beforehand, you know, is the, is the field safe? Did they make it known to the NFL or to, you know, whoever it might be that the field conditions need work? It's not safe on Monday or Tuesday before the game, Wednesday before the game, you know, there's whatever the, whatever the case is. I don't know. I just thought that article was funny. So, so that's the NFL article for today. Okay. Now, let's go to the science article. I'm trying to keep these episodes down to about an hour for several reasons. One primary reason is because my voice starts to go out at about an hour and it's really irritating. So I'm going to try to keep this to about an hour. The article for today, now we've, we've been going over um, nitrogen stabilizers. And last week's articles, I think I went over three or four articles. And none of them were flattering to nitrogen stabilizers. None of them really showed any convincing information that you should pay extra to get these nitrogen stabilizers in your program. The article I went over the prior week actually had the cost. And the cost of these nitrogen stabilizers being urease inhibitors and nitrification inhibitors that you add to urea. Uh, not only do they rarely result, if ever, result in a increased turf response or longevity compared to urea, they rarely result in any beneficial component of the soil plant system. Very rarely. They do. Occasionally. And I'd mentioned... I guess it was last week that there are some papers that are that show some benefit to using them, and I was going to show those papers. And so I today was this was the week I was going to show these papers, and so I went in. I haven't read this paper in a little while, but I remember it was flattering, or it was it showed some positive responses to the product. And so I went in to brief myself on the article and highlight some things. And I realized that even this article that is shows some benefit isn't particularly that, you know, flattering of it. I mean, it's still, it's not that good. And so I, I guess I, I'm saying that to say this is that I, I did not intend to mislead anybody. I was going to show f- favorable articles and this was the favorable article and it's not that favorable. So, um, it is what it is, but, there is some beneficial response noted in this paper, but it's not that good. So, you know, as we get going through here, just keep that in mind. This was intended to be the one that shows there's some good things going on occasionally, but it's not, it's not that good. Okay, so this was written by Jew Christians and Blackmer. Now, this group, this um, team, if you want to call it that, in the late 80s, early 90s, put out probably five or six articles on nitrogen-stabilized products. We're going to go over another one tomorrow. But there was a handful of product, a handful of papers that came out from this team in about a five-year period or so. And some of them showed some positive responses, and then some of them didn't. And um, so... So I'll, 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 I don't know where I'm going with that, but I just, I just want to make sure it's clear that there is some evidence you'll see where there's some nitrogen uptake 
benefits, but when you look at the plant quality or growth or whatever, there's very little there. And this was one of the most favorable teams that, you know, generated information about this. So let's get started. He does a pretty good job in the introduction. Uh, but this paper is relatively short and pretty straightforward. This is a very easy paper to understand. So, um, so like, you, like I've mentioned before, some of the papers are not easy to remember, not easy to know or to, to comprehend. This one's very easy. I'm going to show the results in a, in a uh, PowerPoint because there's not a whole lot of results uh, here. So I'll just show them in the PowerPoint. Okay. Kentucky Bluegrass Recovery of Urea Derived Nitrogen 15 Amended with Urease Inhibitor. This was published in Soil, Soci Soil Science Society of America Journal in 1991. Soil Science Society of America Journal is one of our top journals. So, you know, right off the bat, I have my, my guard is down a little bit because I have pretty good confidence that the information in this journal is pretty sound. Doesn't mean it is, doesn't mean it's not, it's not but generally I have great, a great deal of confidence that the information is sound. And, and that's, you'll see that's the case with this article. Urea is a dominant form of nitrogen fertilizer in world agriculture. Remember, this was in 1991. Solid urea and ni nitrogen solutions containing urea urea account for 25% of USA and 80% of the Asian nitrogen usage. I'm sure that's changed since 1991, but that's what it was then. Because of its low cost, relative, relatively low salt index, and compatibility in tank mixed solutions with many other pesticides used on lawns, urea is also a major source of nitrogen fertilizer for the turfgrass industry. The surface applications of urea in both solid and liquid forms involves the risk of considerable nitrogen loss through nitrate leaching and ammonium volatilization into the atmosphere. Now, this is true, and there is very little debate in, among the, in the scientific community as to the potential environmental risks and losses of urea once it enters the ecosystem. In term, I mean, what I mean by that is volatilization is a loss, nitrogen leaching is a loss. Some of these losses, like denitrification and leaching, actually have an environmental consequence, whereas others probably just have an agronomic consequence. In other words, your your plant growth might be reduced if it if you lose the nitrogen. In other cases, it might be reduced, and there's an environmental consequence. So, the the use of these nitrification inhibitors and urease inhibitors pretty clearly show the evidence cl pretty clearly shows that. They will reduce that. They will reduce your uh, volatilization. Almost when volatilization is going to occur, almost always the inclusion of these compounds will reduce that volatilization. It, it, it's I'm not every, I can't say every time, but nearly every case. However, keep in mind. I mean, I, I am worried. I am concerned about that in terms of loss into our ecosystem, particularly in cases where the loss will result in some other potential harm to the environment like leaching or like denitrification. I am, I am concerned about that. We want to reduce that. But when we were talking about the plant response or the, the value to you as a turf manager in terms of increasing turf quality and increasing turf color or growth, reducing volatilization and reducing denitrification don't always in turn result in a beneficial turf grass response. And that's critical because we're going to show in this article that there may be some benefit here or there, 
but they're not going to show anything about the turf grass quality or color. We're going to we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about that tomorrow. And we talked about that all last week as well. Okay, so keep in mind, you know, in other words, don't get lost in thinking we need these <clears throat> we need these products because it reduces volatilization. They do reduce volatilization. What does that do to the plant? Okay, remember that. Torello and Warner, 1983, demonstrated that urease activity in a turf thatch layer and urease activity associated with grass tissues were 18 to 30 times higher than such activity in the underlying soil. Now, urease, for those who might not be familiar, is the enzyme required to convert urea to ammonium. Urea, in its, as it exists when you apply it, is not going to be taking up into the plant. It's not really, I mean, I imagine there might be a very, very small percentage, maybe. I don't even... I don't even know if there's any, but it's going, it needs to be converted into a, a usable form, which is either ammonium and then nitrate. Okay. And this happens relatively quickly in most arable soils. The conversion from urea to ammonium was in days, not, not months. So that conversion is required before the plant can really consume it and use it. And what they're saying is here is that the urease enzyme is most prevalent in the turf thatch layer and grass tissue. Then it's more prevalent there than it is in the soil. 80, 18 to 30 times higher than in the underlying soil. This is what the 1983 team concluded. Their findings suggest that, re- that regardless of the type of underlying soil, when urea is applied to turf, the high urease levels in thatch could result in greater ammonia volatilization than is normally observed in other types of soil plant systems. So in this particular case, in this Torello-Werner 1983 paper, which we haven't gone over, they're saying because turf grass is essentially a carpet and because the urease is uh, higher in the thatch tissue area than in the soil and because the urea has to move through that, that layer before it gets into the soil. Because of all those conditions, the the volatilization in turf grass systems can be much higher. I could quote five or ten studies that show the opposite compared to row crops, where there is no coverage of the soil. It's bare soil, essentially, and they're applying it in bands or they're slitting it in however they're they're applying the nitrogen in row crops where there is essentially no roots and no turf covers. They're either doing in corn or some other crop or soybeans or something. And the volatilization in those systems generally are much greater than in turf grass systems. But he's quoting a paper from 1983 that says it can be higher in turf. Okay, no problem. Urease inhibitors represent a possible method of reducing volatile volatile loss from surface applied urea. So when the urea volatilizes, obviously it's not going to be available to be moved into the, the soil into the plant. And they're saying urease inhibitors represent a possible method of reducing volatile loss from surface applied urea, which is pretty clear. There's many, many articles that will show that. So the objective of this study, objectives of this study were, one, to measure the recovery of surface applied urea nitrogen by Kentucky bluegrass turf. Two, to evaluate the urease inhibitor MBPT as a means of reducing loss of nitrogen from Kentucky bluegrass turf treated with urea. And three, to investigate the relative uptake of soil and fertilizer nitrogen by Kentucky bluegrass turf. So they're going to be looking at basically 
urea versus urea with an MBT with a urease inhibitor on it, and they're going to be doing it at two different rates of the MBPT. Very clean, clear study. Very simple study. The field measure. This is the materials and methods. The field measurement of urea nitrogen recovery was conducted in the summer of 1987 at Iowa State University Turfgrass Research Area, north of Ames, Iowa. The turf used in the study had been established in 1981, and then they did it in 1987. So it was a six-year-old. I would I would argue that that's very well established. That six years in, I would it's that's a, a very well established turf grass. Uh, had been established 1981 on a nickel soil, pH 7.5. So the pH is fairly high, not not hot, not fairly high, but high enough to potentially increase the volatilization of urea with 2.3% organic matter. By seeding a blend of 25% by weight of Parade, Parade, Adelphi, Glade, and Rugby Kentucky Bluegrass. So it was a blend of these Kentucky Bluegrass cultivars. The area was maintained in lawn conditions during the six years following establishment. So the it was planted in 1981 and it was maintained as a lawn for six years before they, stud, they started the study. The treatments included liquid urea applied at a basic rate of one pound of nitrogen per thousand square feet with the urease inhibitor MBPT at either no MBPT, 0.25 or 0.5% of the weight of nitrogen. The urea labeled with 5% N15 was applied at the center of each plot to an area measuring 0.2 square meters. The rest of the plot received the same rate of urea and nitrogen minus the N15 label. This is very common to do this. So when we go out on, on, on uh, field plots and we're dealing with 2 meters by 3 meters or 2 by 2 meters or we're dealing with larger plots than we would in the greenhouse or the lab, the N15, especially back then at that time, is very expensive. You can't just go out and start spreading this stuff all over the creation. You don't have that much money. So we'll pick a small section of the plot, and that will be the plot that we apply the, the labeled nitrogen to. And then that's the plot that you'll measure in 15 recovery and so forth. So forth. That's that part of the plot. Okay, this is very common. If we had all the money in the world, then that'd be different. But oftentimes, our budget limits our ability to completely just apply everything across the plot. Um, and, they, and they did what many people have done and what I think is necessary. All treatments were applied with a spray mist atomizer attached to an air pressure pump. The study was irrigated before treatment with six, so six millimeters, it'd be, uh, I don't even know what that'd be in inches, probably a tenth of an inch or something. No irrigation was applied for 24 hours following the treatment. So they applied the treatments and they shut the water off. And subsequent irrigation was conducted to supply 25 millimeters. So, so that'd be, uh, that'd be what, what would that be in inches? 25 millimeters. I can't, I can't do, I can do centimeters, but every time I get into millimeters, I get confused. <laughs> Sorry guys. I'm going to get this into inches for those people who, who want to know. I think it's, it can't be an inch. It must be, um, it must be like a tenth of an inch or something. It says an inch, 25, so two point, yeah, so an inch. Yeah, an inch. 2.5 centimeters is what, what is an inch. And so, yeah, 25 millimeters is an inch. So, oh, a week. I thought per application. Okay, so it was conducted to supply one inch of water per week as, com as combination of rainfall. There you go. Okay, now I'm cooking. 
I thought they were playing an inch per application. I, I got my brain's not completely focused yet. I guess this morning, irrigation was conducted to apply one inch of water per week, combined with rainfall. In other words, total amount of rainfall. If it was less than an inch, they applied the amount of irrigation to bring it up to an inch. Heavy rains measuring 61.3 and 70.9 millimeters fell on the fifth and sixth days after treatments, respectively. So that's a lot of water. So they, there was five inches of rain fell on the fifth, within the first week after application. And you can see that right here in this graph of those listing rainfall and days after days after treatment you can see the fifth and sixth days here there was you know two or three inches of rain on one day and two or three inches of rain on the next day yeah so that's a lot of rain clippings were collected weekly following five weeks of clipping removal all above ground shoot tissue was collected from the 0.1 square meter subplot in 10 centimeter in diameters by 17 centimeter deep soil cores with thatch layers were removed from N15 treated area for analysis. So they applied the treatments. That was all the materials and methods. They applied the treatments in Ames, Iowa to a blend of Kentucky bluegrass on six-year-old Kentucky bluegrass that had been maintained as a, as a lawn for six years. And they applied a little section in the middle of N15. They're collecting clippings. They're, and then they collect a soil core after the fifth week. So they apply the treatments and they let them kind of the turf respond and then they take a soil core so they can take soil analysis and plant, uh, you know, total, basically total soil and plant analysis in, the, in that column that they took a core from. And that's the materials and methods, very straightforward. All right. So the results in discussion. A total of 28.8% of the urea-derived nitrogen was recovered from the control plots during the five-week study period, figure two. So this figures, I don't really see these figures, but it's, not, it's a nice little figure. You know, it's kind of creative the way they did it. Now, back in the 80s and 90s, a lot of these figures had to be hand-drawn, and there were people you, would, you could pay to, to hand-draw these figures. And once they're hand-drawn, <laughs> That's it. You got to stay with it because you're going to have to pay them again to redo it. Even some of the graphs back in the day, you had to do it by hand. And we can see the percent in recovery after five weeks. So what we're looking at for those listening is a cross section that's been drawn of the turf grass uh, above ground and below ground. So it's showing the, sh showing the clippings and the shoots, the thatch, and then the root zones. And then it says percent in recovery in each section. So the total clippings, which is what was removed with the mower, was 7.5%. And then in the shoots, it was about 1.9%. The thatch was 2.4%. And then in the root zone, we're looking at 13.6% in the top three inches. And then the three to six inch range, we're looking at about 3.4% with a total of 28.8%. Okay. So that's what they, they're referring to in, that, in this uh, thing. 28.8% was recovered. The greatest amounts were recovered from the clippings, 7.5%, and, and the upper three inches, 13.6%. Um, yeah. The total of urea-derived nitrogen recovered in the clippings ranged from 7.5 to 8.1% of that added and usually was not influenced by the addition of NBPT. So what they're talking about is just the part that was cut off, the clippings themselves. It 
wasn't in, the nitrogen in the clippings was not usually not influenced by MPPT. So there was no benefit to applying the urease inhibitor when it comes to the nitrogen in the clippings. Okay, it's going to change when we move to the other parts of the plant soil, but in the clippings themselves, there was no difference. And I'm going to show all this in a graph format so it's easier to understand, easier, easier to visualize. This whole table or table one is going to show up and I'm showing a graph. A notable exception was in the second week in which recovery of urea-derived nitrogen clippings increased to 4.1% in plots treated with 0.5% in BPT. Now, I'm going to read this because he uses this as an, as an postulate throughout the remainder of the paper. It is possible that the higher rate of MBPT, the higher rate being 0.5%, remember they use 0, 0.25, and 5, the higher rate of MBPT delayed hydrolysis of urea sufficiently to reduce the amount of urea-derived nitrogen available to the grass before the first clipping. So basically what he's saying is the 0.5% the MBPT may have been so high that when we applied the urea for the first uh, first week, basically, the urea remained in the urea form and didn't convert over to ammonium. And therefore, the plant didn't respond to it. Okay, and that postulate is pretty solid. I mean, it's okay. And they they use that as a, as a potential explanation as to why the results were what they were. So if you think, and I don't know if it's true or not, but it, it, it's, you know, reasonable that the higher percentage of MBPT simply delayed the, the urea hydrolysis beyond the first week and it was still in the urea form during the first week and it was only after that that the urea started to break down into ammonium whereas the 0.25 percent in mbpt the lower rate allowed for some of the urea to be broken down they don't have any data to clearly show that but that's what they use as a, as a potential explanation to their results nitrogen recovery in shoots increased in grass treated with mbpt i'm going to show you that in the graph Recovery of urea-derived nitrogen in the surface uh, three inches ranged from 13.6 to 22.4. I'll show you that in a second. This included all M15 labeled nitrogen as nitrate in other forms, ammonium, soil, organic matter, plant roots. Remember, he, they did a total Keldol. Now, I didn't mention that, but they did total digestion of nitrogen. So they, they didn't speciate it out. It's whatever was in the as nitrogen, whether it was nitrate, ammonium, organic, it was the Keldol procedure analyzes all of that. Okay, I'm, I'm going to simply show one thing on this table and then I'm going to show the, the results in a graph. This table is, the, remember the last couple of episodes we talked about single degree contrasts, which are sort of an older and now out of date method of using, comparing treatments, but there's nothing wrong with it. It's fine. I, in some cases, I actually prefer it. And what you're going to see here on this table, if you ever do pull it up and want to read it, and when I show the results, you'll see it, is that you'll have urea then you'll have urea with 0.25% MBPT and then urea with 0.5% MBPT. And then you'll see down here below, it'll say the probability of F. And when you see something like that, what you want to, I don't know if you, I guess you need to have some background knowledge, but basically I'll give you the gist of it. When you, if you want to read this for yourself and understand what the results were yourself, the probability of F is sort of the um, inverse of the P value. So the probability of F being in this case 0.8, so this right here is the urea plus the urea versus urea plus 25% or 0.25% MBPT. When it says that, what they're doing is they're comparing this 2.6 to this 2.9. And, and then the, the probability of F is 0.8. Okay. So 
in our world, we generally won't say things differ unless the probability of F is, is less than 0.05. Okay. I may have been wrong on the inverse of the p-value. I may have been off on that, actually. I don't, a statistician is going to have a heyday with this, I'm sure. I'm not a statistician. But when we see 0.8, what that's saying is there's a very, very good chance that those two values do not differ, 2.6 and 2.9. So when you're reading through this, if you see a value like this where it says 0.01, what this says is, is that there's only a 1% chance that if I say these two values differ that I'm wrong. And we would be willing to accept that risk. I might be wrong, but at 0.01, I'm willing to take that risk and say, yes, these two values, 1.9 and 2.5 actually do differ because I'm 99, well, 98.1% confident in that or whatever the number is, okay? That's the way to read these. So with that, let me go to the PowerPoint and show these results. Okay. So the influence of MBPT on nitrogen recovery and Kentucky bluegrass clippings. We have weeks of application, or it should be weeks after application. And then we have on the x-axis and nitrogen and clippings as a percent of the plot on the y-axis. Then we have urea and urea plus 0.25% MBPT and urea plus 0.5% MBPT. And you'll see the weeks after application, the first week there were no differences in any of the nitrogen recovered in the clippings. The second week, this is what they were talking about when they're saying that perhaps the 0.5% uh, MBPT delayed the conversion of urea into ammonium. Because in the second week, you see it go from about two, about two and a half percent from urea to about 4% from urea with 0.5% MBPT. The star here signifies, that's, that's what that star is from that probability of F on that previous table. I just moved it onto this graph. So we see an increase in the nitrogen and the clippings as a percent of applied when we use MBPT in the second week at 0.5%. Oh, we use it, and then two weeks later at 0.5%. So this is what I was trying to say prior to this show tonight, or to this morning, was that this was supposed to be a favorable paper <laughs> for nitrogen additives for stabilized nitrogen sources, but it's not that favorable because we do see a benefit here in this second week. But after that, we don't see any difference between the sources on nitrogen uptake in the clippings in the third week or the fourth week or the fifth week or even the cumulative, the total. There's no benefit in terms of nitrogen uptake in the clippings. So, you know, if somebody wanted to make an argument that you can actually increase nitrogen in the clippings, I would say, yeah, it's possible. There's some data right here in the second week to indicate it's possible. But when you look at the overall data and the individual weeks, we're only talking about one week in the clippings that it did that out of five. Okay? And the total didn't even affect it. So let's look at uh, let's look at thatch and shoots. So this is everything basically above ground with the exception of the clippings. The influence of MBPT on the end recovery in Kentucky Blue Rest from thatch and shoots. The same graph for those listening. On the y-axis, it's nitrogen recovered as a percent of applied. And we have thatch and we have shoots. Let's start with shoots since it's the easiest one. The shoots, we actually do see an increase in nitrogen recovered in the clippings from both the 0.25% MBPT 
and the 0.5% MBPT. It's this much increase, whatever that is, two to, it's on the table, two to 2.2 or something like that, 1.9 to 2.3 or whatever this, whatever this value is. I should have put the values on here. I'm sorry about that. So you do have an increase in nitrogen in the, in the thatch and the shoots. I'm sorry, in the shoots. You do have an increase in the shoots by using MBPT. Now this increase is up to you to determine if you want to pay for that. Remember, we're not showing quality. We're not showing color. We're not showing any of the things that probably you're most interested in because they didn't measure that. We're going to, we're going to talk about that tomorrow. And we've already talked about it last week. But there is a little bit of information here that nitrogen uptake might be able to be increased in the shoots. When it comes to thatch, there were no differences statistically. And you'll see these bars here. It goes from 2 to 10%. From known MBPT to MBPT at 2.25, you have a 10% recovered using MBPT at 0.25%. And only 2 using just urea. And you say, well, Travis, this is obviously an increase. And, and then even from 0.5, we see go up to 6, from 2 to 6 here, okay? It, it could be, it's not statistically significant, but what that means is really there may be an actual increase here in thatch. It's just that there was so much variation that we couldn't say with any confidence that indeed the MBPT did result in nitrogen, a greater nitrogen uptake in the thatch than urea. Now, if you repped this out, you know, eight, nine, 10, 20 times, whatever the case is, there's a good chance that this probably would pull out and we would indeed find that MBPT does result in increased nitrogen uptake in the thatch compared to urea. That, that may be the case. But keep in mind, I'm, I'm not, we're not saying these don't differ biologically, but statistically they don't. Biologically, it's, it's pro, it may be. It, it, it's, it's very possible that that may be indeed true. We would just need to rep it out more to account for the, the variation in the data. When we look at influence of MBT on nitrogen recovery in the soil, same graph setup, where we have nitrogen recovery percent of applied. Now we're looking at the soil, urea, urea with 0.25 and urea with 0.5% MBPT. We're looking at the top three inches and then the three to six inch depth, and we see no difference of nitrogen in the soil statistically. Okay, in the top three inches, the urea plus MBPT 0.25% and the 0.5% does show at least, you know, numerically an increase. It's not statistically significant, but I would argue that if you rep this thing out enough, it's possible that the inclusion of MBPT in reality may actually increase nitrogen in this top zero to three inches compared to just using urea alone. Okay. That's the, that's the idea behind it anyway. It should hold the urea and the ammonium in the soil for a longer period of time. Maybe not the urea if you get a lot of rainfall, but the ammonium being a positively charged ion, it should hold in the soil longer. Um, we haven't seen that in the previous publications we've gone over, and we're not seeing it here statistically. But I'm just saying that you would need to do more research on this to have any confidence to say, yes, using MPPT will result in greater nitrogen in the soil, the top three inches at least. The three to six inches, clearly there's no increase. It actually goes down, at least numerically. There's no, there's no statistical difference in either one. Okay? So that's the way to read this. It could be, there could be a biological significance here, 
but because there's so much variation, we couldn't say anything statistically in, in regards to this. Now, when we look at the influence of MPPT on total nitrogen recovery, that's the clippings, that's the thatch, that's the shoots, and that's the soil. We showed that urea had about a 30, 28% uh, recovery. Urea with 0.25% MBPT had about a 45% recovery. And at 0.5% MBPT had about a 30% recovery. So we went from 28 to 45 and then 36. Now, they're not statistically different. Okay, the, the, we were, they weren't able to show that they statistically were greater using MBPT. But I would argue that I'd make the same argument. MB, you know, it's in reality, all we're, our, all, what we're trying to do in science what we're, what we're trying to do in science is to determine what is going on in reality. And it's only through our feeble attempts, you know, our, our hubris that we think we know exactly how to do all this stuff, that we, we attempt to determine what is in reality. So but the point is, methodologically, we're limited by our, by our you know, lack of knowledge and understanding of the system. We're limited by that. So within that methodological restriction, we're only able to say so much, but in reality, it's going on or it's not going on one way or the other. It's either doing, it's either increasing nitrogen or it's not. It, it's just our feeble attempt to measure it that's that's holding us back on as to really understanding the system better. And as we progress and we get better with our methods and our analysis and our instruments and so forth, we get better and better and more confident on what's going on. So I guess what I'm saying is, this might actually be happening with MBPT. You might actually see, in, in reality, you, this might be occurring. It's just through our feeble attempts and to measure it, we're, we're unable to say with confidence that indeed it is increasing, in this study at least, it is indeed it is increasing the nitrogen in the system or it's holding more nitrogen in the system than compared to urea. It, it probably is, but we just can't say it because of our lack of confidence due to, due to the statistical insignificance. Okay. So let me go back to the paper and we'll wrap this whole thing up. And I've got eight minutes. I'm trying to stay to an hour. <laughs> okay. So wrap this thing up. We only have two paragraphs, two and a half paragraphs, and we'll be done in this, the, the discussion and conclusions. The addition of 0.5 MBPT did not result in increases in recovery of urea-derived nitrogen in either in the soil or throughout the soil plant system. This reduced effect of MBPT at the higher rate of application indicates that the higher rate of MBPT did more than just inhibit losses of nitrogen by ammonium volatilization. All of the observations made in this study could be explained if the higher rate of MBPT, MBPT strongly inhibited the hydrolysis of urea and thereby increased the tendency of urea to move downward and out of the depth, the depth sampled. Let me just explain that before I go on. What they're saying is it, urea is not charged. There's no positive or negative charges. It's, it's, it's a sugar. It doesn't separate out. It's not a salt. And it leaches through very easily like nitrate does. If, if enough water is moving, it'll move through the soil because nothing's holding on to it in terms of charge. And what they're saying is if indeed the 0.5 held urea as urea longer, then, and on top of that, it rained five days later, it could have simply held it in the, in the, in the form longer and then moved through the soil system. So they said increase the tendency of urea to move downward. So it could have, that could have resulted in that. Now I may have made a mistake verbally earlier. I may have mentioned that the idea is to hold the nitrogen in the soil longer as ammonium form. That's from DCD or another one. I may have misspoken on that. I don't, can't remember what I, exactly I said. 
But this MBPT is only intended to hold it as in the urea form. There's no additional additive in this particular study, being DCD, that would have held it in the ammonium form and therefore held more nitrogen in the soil. I apologize if I made that mistake uh, earlier. Okay. So urea is free to move with water and soil. In recent studies by Preeb and Blackmer in 1989 indicated that in the present study, the irrigation water applied and the heavy rains on day five and six could have moved significant amount of urea below the ring zone of the grass and out of the depth sampled. So that's what I just mentioned. So that, that's very, very possible. The, the conversion of urea to ammonium in, in most agronomically significant soils is going to happen pretty quick. Certainly, I mean, it's going to depend on the rate and the soil and a lot, a lot of different factors. But certainly within a day or two, a large percentage of the urea you applied has already been converted to ammonium. And within only a day or two after that, if maybe not even that, but within a day or two after that, that ammonium is going to be converted over to nitrate in most soils. And if any purist out there is going to say, well, what about this? And yeah, but this and yeah, but that. Yeah, I get that. Okay. I know saturated soils and I get all that stuff. But in most arable, normal soils, this conversion from urea all the way to nitrate is only a matter of days. And if you hold the urea in its form for an unnecessary length of time, and there's a huge amount of rainfall that comes through, it's just going to move through just like nitrate. And there's plenty of evidence to support that. And that's what they say here. They even actually have a study here they cite where it will move quickly. And they're saying, they're postulating that the the 0.5% didn't really help a whole lot, didn't really do a whole lot. And they're saying that if indeed it held it in the urea form through that first rainfall, then that would explain many of their results, which I agree it would. They didn't measure all the leaching and stuff. They didn't do that, so they don't know, but it's a very reasonable postulate. The possibility that 0.5% MBPT may have increased losses of nitrogen by promoting movement of urea through the rooting zone in this study should suggest that the benefits of MBPT may be increased substantially by careful control of the amount and intensity of the first irrigation after fertilization. I'm going to come back to this in a second. Let me just read this and I'll come back to that. An optimal amount of irrigation would move the urea through the thatch and just into the rooting zone. <clears throat> the intensity of the irrigation should be considered carefully because intense irrigation events promote preferential movement of water and urea through soil macropores. A process can result, a process that can result in greater downward movement of water than expected in the absence of preferential flow. He's getting into soil physics here. That's fine. That is, intense irrigation or rainfall favors the accumulation of water, having enough energy to move into large pores normally not involved in water transport when water is applied slowly and the surface layers of soil does not. Yeah, he might be a soil physicist. I don't know, Jew, but this <laughs> Jew might be a soil physicist. Because what he's basically saying is the movement of water in, in many soils does not occur in the macro pores. It occurs around the surface of the soil particles themselves in the micro pores. It's when the soil is saturated, when is that's when a, the water can greatly move quickly because it moves from unsaturated water flow to saturated water flow, and that's when you go from micropores to macropore movement. And that's all soil physics. A very complicated subject of which I am not an expert on. <laughs> 
After the urea has been moved into the soil and hydrolyzed, normal irrigation practices could be resumed. Now, what I wanted to say here is that um, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find any soil physicist or soil chemist or soil fertility expert who would disagree with any of that. Careful control of the water after application of these products with MBPT or nitrification stabilizer, whatever, nitrogen stabilizers, is important. Uh, I doubt anybody's, you might be here for a very long time before you found a soil scientist who would disagree with that. What I would say about that is, if you're carefully controlling the water, where you're applying the urea in a liquid or granular form, you're applying the urea and you're carefully controlling the water, and you're able to manage that, you don't get high rainfalls, there's a good chance you don't need any of the nitrogen stabilizers anyway, because it's the, it's the movement of water from on pure urea the movement of the application of water and the movement of that urea through the thatch into the soil that already will greatly reduce the volatilization of urea. Therefore, negating the need of applying any stabilized nitrogen source that would, that would uh, reduce urea, urea conversion. It's when you don't apply the water where the conditions are greatly favorable to gaseous loss of, through volatilization. It's when that doesn't occur that it's potentially possible, it's possible that MBPT or a product like that may be a benefit to you. So if you're already, if you're going to apply water carefully to increase the efficacy of MBPT, an argument, a very good argument could be made. If you're going to do that, then you don't need the MBPT anyway. Okay. Together, this last paragraph, together with other recent studies showing the importance of preferential movement of water, and surface application of urea through soil macropores, the, the results of this study indicate the possibility that the benefits of using MBPT may be enhanced by careful control of the first irrigation after fertilization. So just summing up what he said before. So if we can sum this whole thing up, they were on Kentucky bluegrass in Iowa. They wanted to look at, see what would happen from, in regards to the nitrogen balancing when you use a urease inhibitor with urea, they applied it to Kentucky bluegrass. They use urea and they use two rates of MBPT, a product that's very well known to reduce volatilization. There's very little doubt about that. And they measured the soil, they measured the plant in the thatch, they measured the clippings, and they measured uh, the shoots. And basically, what they found is is that 0.25% MBPT may have had a benefit on. I think it was the the shoots. There may have been a little bit of increase. Was it the shoots or was it? Let me make sure I'm not fibbing to you here. Yeah, the shoots. There may have been a little bit of an increase in nitrogen in the tissue of the shoots, but there really wasn't any benefit in terms of the overall uh, balancing of nitrogen. In other words, the amount of nitrogen in the total system was it greater using these nitrogen stabilizers compared to not using these nitrogen stabilizers. And they, they concluded that there was no benefit. Even though there was a point on, with shoots, there was a benefit. There was a point in the second week that there was an increase in nitrogen in the clippings using 0.5% MBPT. There was one or two little points on the map where there was an increase here and there. But most of the time, it didn't influence the nitrogen recovery in the plant or the soil. And overall, it did not. The, MBP, the use of MBPT did not enhance or increase the nitrogen recovery. Okay. And I'm sorry, because uh, this was going to be the, 
the, the article that I was going to show that was favorable to MBPT because it does show a couple points, um, but it's not that favorable to MBPT. So, uh, you know, it is what it is. <laughs> so, uh, tomorrow, uh, the show is going to start a little later, around 1030 in the morning. It's going to be, it might, it's going to say around 1030. Okay. It's not going to be probably at 1030. It's going to be around that time because I got a lot of stuff going on and um, we have something special for tomorrow. So just bear with me tomorrow. It could be as 1030, sometime between 1030 and 11. I'll just say that somewhere around that time is when I'm going to be able to get on and, and do the show tomorrow. And then tomorrow night, what I'm thinking about doing is I'm actually lining up right now some comments and some emails and a video I want to go over that are uh, about the channel and give you guys a chance, give me a chance to respond to some of your questions that have been piling up. I haven't been able to, to address yet. Okay. Um, let me look at the chat real quick and see. So Rich, the long guy says decent question here. What would be considered too much water for a sandy loam with normal soil moisture to water in urea? Well, if you're going to say a sandy loam and quote unquote normal soil levels, I don't know what normal soil levels are, but I'm going to say normal soil levels are filled capacity. If, if that's the case, I don't know if that's the case in your, your situation, but if you're already at filled capacity, you're, you only need about a 10th of an inch to a quarter of an inch. And I'm going to go over another paper that actually has the depth of water and the influence of the amount of water applied on urea volatilization. So that exact question will be answered in, in, in the upcoming papers, in the next you know two or three papers. They did zero, I think they did a tenth, and I think they did a quarter, and then a one inch. I can't remember exactly. And then it shows the percentage of nitrogen that was lost at each of those irrigation depths. Okay. Good question, and we have answers for that. Okay, I'm going to leave you with perhaps the most peculiar guitarist. I, it's the most peculiar guitarist I've ever come across. I'm sure there's more, um, but I'm going to leave you with him, and um, I will be back tomorrow, 10.30-ish, something like that. Until then, be kind. I'll see you tomorrow. Bye.